So on this mission trip, we had a group of teenagers, and, and as often happens, sometimes you run into particular challenges and difficulties. And on this particular trip, we had a, an individual that kind of went off the deep end, if you will, and caused some problems. And we warned this individual, you know, if you don't stop doing what you're doing, we're going to have to end up taking you home. And so we ended up having to take this individual home from Washington, D.C. It was just such a, uh, an interruption in some of the behavior and so forth. So one of uh, friends of mine who was a youth leader with the youth group at that time, we decided, it was 1130 at night, we decided that we could put him in the church van, drive from Washington, D.C. to Parkersburg, drop him off to his parents, take a two-hour nap and get back to Washington, D.C. by about 4 o'clock the next day when we needed to have the van back for a, an activity that everybody else was doing in D.C. And so at 1130 at night, we take off, and we're coming back to Parkersburg, and we're driving in shifts, and this friend of mine's driving, and I was in the passenger seat up front, and I went to sleep, and an hour, two hours, three hours later, I woke up. I, I was tired, I was rubbing my eyes, and I looked over at this friend of mine, you just kind of have to know him to, to, to get how funny this was, and I said to him, I said, how are we doing? He said, we're doing awesome. I said, well, are we making good time? Oh, he said, we're making awesome time. I said, well, great. But he said, I have no idea where we're at. <laughs> and I said, what? He said, I think I missed the road about two hours back. But he said, we're still making awesome time. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but sometimes in life, it feels like we're making awesome time only to discover we don't have any idea where we're going, doesn't it? And for some of us, life in general tends to be about just kind of going through the motions with, with no real purpose and no real kind of aim and, and not really knowing why we get up in the morning. And I think about this day that we're thinking about today in Palm Sunday, and I think about our Savior coming into Jerusalem, and, and we know that He's going to be in just a short matter of time hanging on that cross for our sins, and, and, and then three days later resurrected in that glory for, for us, and and yet the folks standing along the roads that day were, were crying Hosanna and they were crying Hallelujah, but they didn't know what they were doing. They had it all upside down in their own minds. They were making good time, but they didn't know what road they were on. They didn't understand what Jesus really was all about. I think maybe in the church today we do the same thing. And maybe in the church today we, we go through the motions and we do what we think are the right things, but sometimes... We don't really know why we do what we do. Sometimes we really don't know who it is we do it for. Would you join me in a word of prayer? <clears throat> Father, as we come before you today, we come before you as people who are broken, who very often cry hallelujah, and we very often cry blessed be your name. But in reality, Lord, so often we really don't know what road you've called us to. In reality, we really don't know where you're headed. In reality, sometimes we really don't know why we're doing what we do. And maybe, Father, that's why so often in the church we're looked at as hypocrites. Maybe that's why so often we seem less than authentic because we go through the motions without the heart. Maybe we obey the rules, but we've lost some of the mystery and the joy and, and just the absolute awesomeness of being in a relationship with you. Bring us back to that today, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
sit back and listen to the words of Max Lucado for a few minutes this morning and just enjoy the story. Imagine a person standing in front of the White House. Better still, imagine yourself standing in front of the White House. That's you on the sidewalk, peering through the fence, over the lawn, at the residence of the President of the United States. That's you in fine form. Your hair is in place and your shoes are shine. That's you turning toward the interest. Your pace is brisk and your stride is sure. It should be. You have come to meet with the President. You have a few matters you wish to discuss with him. First, there's the matter of the fire hydrant in front of your house. Could they soften the red just a shade? It's way too bright for your liking. Then there's the issue of world peace. You are for it. Would he help create it? And lastly, college tuition is too high. Could he call the admissions office of your daughter's school and ask them to lighten up a little bit? He might have some influence. All worthy issues, correct? Won't take more than a few minutes. Besides, you brought him some cookies that he can share with the first lady and the first puppy. And so with bag in hand and a smile on your face, you step up to the gate and announce to the guard, I'd like to see the president, please. He asks for your name and you give it. He looks at you and then at his list and says, we have no record of your appointment. You have to have an appointment, you ask? Yes. How do I get one? Through his office staff. Could I have their number? No, it's restricted. Then how can I get in? It's better to wait until they call you. But they don't know me. The guard shrugs, then they probably won't call you. And so you sigh and turn and begin your journey home. Your questions are unanswered and your needs are unmet. And you were so close. Had the president stepped out onto the lawn, you could have waved and he would have waved back. You were only yards from his front door, but you might as well have been miles. The two of you were separated by the fence and by the guard. Then there's the problem of the Secret Service. Had you somehow entered, they would have stopped you. The staff would have done the same. There were way too many barriers. And what about the invisible barriers? Barriers of time. The president's too busy. Barriers of status. You have no clout. Barriers of protocol. You have to go through the right channels. You leave the White House with nothing more than a hard lesson learned. You do not have access to the president. Your chat with the commander-in-chief, it ain't going to happen. You'll have to take your problem about peace and your question about the fire hydrant home with you. That is, unless he takes the initiative. Unless he happens spot it, to spot you on the sidewalk, takes pity on your plight, and says to his chief of staff, see that person with the sack of cookies? Go tell him I'd like to talk to him for a minute. If he gives such a command, all the barriers will drop. The Oval Office will call the head of security, the head of security will call the guard, and the guard will call your name. Guess what? I can't explain it, but the door to the Oval Office is wide open. You stop and turn and straighten your shoulders and enter the same door where only moments before you were denied access. The guard is the same, the gates are the same, the security personnel are the same, but the situation is not the same. You can now go where before you could not. And what's more, you are not the same. You feel special, chosen. Why? Because the man over there saw you down here and made it possible for you to come in. Because of Christ, you can now go where before you could not go. Because of Christ and this triumphal entry and what happens in the resurrection and the crucifixion and the resurrection, because of Jesus Christ, in just a moment, the place that you could not enter that door that you could not open, 
that journey that you could not take has all been open for every one of us. Instead of standing on the outside looking in, the door and the gate have been swung wide open and we have been invited to come inside. And there are several questions that come to mind when we realize that now we can go before where we could not, where before we could not. First of all, the, the question really is, well, where can I go with Christ that I can't go without Him? I, I mean, what's going to be different? What do I now have access to because of what He has done for me? In other words, maybe just very simply, why do I need Jesus in my life? The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the others who crucified Jesus, th these folks were good folks. These folks were the religious folk of the day. They were people that if you were walking down the street, you would have said, well, they know more about God's will than I do. They, they're living God's will probably more than I am. They were the respected religious people of your community, if you would. And yet they didn't get it. Even in all that they knew and even in all the education that they had and the leadership that they had been offered, there was still something lacking in their lives. If you go back to Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, you get a sense of this when Jesus says this. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never what? Knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Now, now, when he's saying these words, he's not talking to people who have never heard about him before. He's not talking to the common folks on the street. He's talking to these good, moral, religious people who are all about doing the right thing, all about obeying the rules, all about the correct code of conduct. And he's saying to them, look, even though you have done all these things and the world thinks you're doing great things, you haven't got it. You don't understand who you do it for, and you don't understand why you do it. You're only going through the motions. You don't know me. <clears throat> I do a lot of leadership stuff with the company I work for, and, and then I do that with churches and pastors, and I do it with other businesses as well. The other day I was in a situation, I was doing a, a small leadership training and and I had a couple of people come up and I'm going to ask a couple of I need a couple of volunteers just raise your hand it, it's this won't hurt not too bad <clears throat> any others here you go come on up here you guys can just stand right down front there all right <clears throat> and, and here's the thing my understanding of leadership is, is simply this if you look at someone like John Maxwell John Maxwell says leadership is influence which I think it is but it's more than just influence. If you look in the scriptures, every person who was called by God to lead people was called to lead them from where they were to where they ought to be. They went from point A to point B. And if you can show me a leader in the Bible who did not lead someone from point A to point B, I'll, I'll, I'd love to see it. Because every story I know, God says, take my people from here to there. From immaturity to maturity, physically from here to the promised land whatever there's always movement you lead people from here to there now there's many ways to lead people right let's say that you're the leader and you're the leadee you're being led so step over here beside of him okay now what is the way he's here at point a and he needs to be over here to point b 
What's one way that you can move him over here? Okay. So you're, you're telling him what to do, right? Tell him. You need to move over there. So move over there. That's awesome. This guy is very easy to lead, okay? <laughs> Watch this. Move back over there. Please, yeah, move back over there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, don't ruin the whole sermon here for me. <laughs> now, how else could you move him over here? Huh? You could, yeah, it's kind of telling him in a different way. But stand behind him. Put both hands out. Just shove him as hard as you can right across there. There you go. You can do that, right? So you can tell him to move. You can forcibly move him, okay? Now, how else might you be able to move him over here? Okay, or you could maybe write down something like this. If you don't move over there, I'm not going to give you lunch this afternoon, right? So he's going to move, yeah? You can threaten people and they'll move, right? You could walk over here. You could pull a dollar out of your pocket and you could say, hey, if you come over here, I'll give you this dollar, right? So bribery gets people to move. Now, all of those things work in leadership. If you guys have worked in companies, you've been led that way. You've been told what to do. You've been threatened if you don't do it. You've been bribed to do it. You've been forcibly made to do it. And it works to get people from point A to point B. I played football in high school and I had a coach that would have been arrested today, but every time I walked off the field, he would grab my face mask and slap my helmet as hard as he could on one side, switch hands, grab my face mask with the other one, slap me on the other side while he was talking to me. And he never inspired me. He never did anything really, except he led me by threats and by telling me exactly what I needed to do. Now, I would almost always go back in and do what he asked me to do for one play or two. And if you threaten people, and if you bribe people, and if you tell them what to do and yell and scream at them in leadership, you can almost always get them to go from point A to point B. But when you get to point B, you always have point C. When you get to point C, you always have point D. And you can hardly ever lead them from where they are to the ultimate place of where they need to go because they get tired of being yelled at, they get tired of being pushed, they get tired of being bribed. But they never get tired. Go back over here. So, now Just put your arm around him. Tell him how much you love him. And say, hey, you know what? Say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go over here. And I think you already know it would probably be good for you to go over here with me. Let's go over here together. Just take him right over there. There you go. Didn't they do awesome? You guys can clap for him. You guys can go sit down, okay? You get lunch. You moved. I'm not sure who's providing it for you, but I'm sure somebody will. And if you don't, you're like me. I'm quite sure you can take care of yourself when it comes to that. (laughs) Leadership is about inspiration. Leadership is about motivation. Leadership is about helping people understand why they do what they do. A lot of people know what they do, but a lot of people don't have any idea why they do it. Once you tap into that, you really tap into more than going through the motions. That is what's going on, I think, when Jesus is talking to us here. He's saying here, he says, it's not enough that you move here because you're afraid not to. It's not enough that you move here just because I told you to. It's not enough to move here because of the fact that you feel threatened if you don't move here. What Jesus wants to do is he wants to put his arm around you and he wants to say, look, it's best for you over here. Go with me to get there. He wants to inspire us. He wants to have this relationship 
with us. And so what we learn, I think, here is this, that doing good without a relationship with God is simply doing good. Now, that's good to do good. Amen? There's nothing wrong with doing good. we got people all over the world. Someone asked me one time, you know, can people who aren't Christians do good? Well, that's a foolish question. Of course they can. There are a lot of people who don't know Jesus that do the very best they can, and they do a lot of good things in this world. But it's still just doing good things. And if you're just doing good things, and you don't know why you're doing them, and you don't know the one who's called you to do them, and you're not doing them in a relationship with the one who died on the cross and was resurrected for you, you're missing the point of what he wants for you. You're missing the relationship. You're missing the depth and the excitement and the abundance and the overflowing life that he wants to give you on this journey from A to B to C to D. You're just going through the motions. I read a story one time, I'm quite sure it's not true, of a pastor who was called to do a funeral. And any of you who have ever pastored in here know this happens all the time. By the local funeral home, by a family who had no pastor. And they were only going to have a graveside service. And it was way out in the middle of nowhere. And the pastor was supposed to show up at a certain time and give us uh, as good as he could do for this family. And so he's winding out through the country, and he can't find the cemetery. And he looks, and he looks, and he realizes he's late. And so finally, he, he comes up into this field, and he finds a cemetery. He, he, he sees some equipment there with a great big hole dug, and some workers standing around the hole. And he gets out of the car, and he runs up there with his Bible. And he doesn't see any family, but he knows that this person didn't have much family. And maybe he's too late, but he still owes it to this person to preach a funeral. And so he launches into this great hour funeral uh, 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 sermon. And, and, and when he's done, he thinks to himself, man, I really did good, you know. It, it, the, the workers even were amen and hallelujah and, you know, preach it, brother, and all that kind of stuff. They got so into it. And so he closes up his Bible and he starts walking back to the car. And he hears one of the workers standing by the piece of equipment say, look, I've been installing these septic tanks for 20 years. And I ain't seen nothing like that before, <laughs> right? He was going through the motions, but he wasn't in the right place. He didn't really know where he was. Dallas Willard, in a book, The Divine Conspiracy, says a lot of us as Christians are like flying in a plane upside down. We think we're right side up. We think all the rules we're obeying and the things we're doing is where it's at, but we've missed the point of what God wants for us. In Galatians 3, 24 and 25, Paul goes into this whole thing about the rules that we find in the Old Testament law. And he says, so the law was put in charge to what? Lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by how well we obeyed the law. Right? No. By faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You see, you know your Old Testament history, right? You know, the, the Jews were under this restrictive, very burdensome Old Testament law that helped them do good it helped them be the kind of people that God wanted them to be but the ultimate goal of the law was to point them to the Savior that was coming was to point them to the Messiah was to point them to Christ where they began to understand not only that they needed to be obedient but why they needed to be obedient how many of y'all brushed your teeth before you came to church this morning here's where people will lie like crazy if they didn't <laughs> nobody's not going to raise their hand right did someone make you brush your teeth this morning? I hope not. 
unless you're under 10, right? But when you were little, did anyone make you brush your teeth? Sure they did. They made you brush your teeth because you didn't know why you needed to brush your teeth, right? And so someone loved you enough to say, you don't need to know why you need to brush your teeth. Brush your teeth, young man, or you're not going out of the house. A to B, threat. I'll give you this if you brush your teeth, bribery, right? All those things to get us to do something that we didn't really know why we did it. But now that we're older and more mature and we understand, it's a really good thing for me to brush my teeth because people at church won't go, ooh, when we talk to them this morning. And I might be able to keep most of my teeth for most of my life, right? And it's a healthy thing for me to do. And so I do it because I know why I do it. You see, the Old Testament law, the folks really didn't know all of the depth of who God was, all the depth of His love, the depth of His forgiveness, the depth of the relationship was not open for them to an understanding at this point. And so they were following the law to do good. But when Jesus came, He said, that's not all there is to it anymore. Now you do what you do. You know why you do it. It's because you belong to Me. Ephesians 2.13 but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. We who were out here are now near to Christ in this alive and vibrant relationship with God made possible through Jesus Christ. And if we think it's about the rules, we miss the entire point of the work of Jesus who came to be our Savior and our Messiah and our friend. And, and, and what we see in the church so often, I know you've seen it as much as I have, is that so many people are still wrapped up in what they do, and they really don't know the person who has asked them to do it and inspired them to do it, and they really don't know why they do it. And so the rules become their God. And you can't break the rules. Well, look, if you just do a little tweaking of your understanding... And you get in this alive, vibrant relationship with God. You'll still brush your teeth and do those things that are good, but you'll know why you do them. And you'll want to do them. Not because you're afraid of hell, but because you're in love with the one that you want to spend eternity with. Amen? I mean, I don't want to go to hell either. But I don't serve Christ because I'm afraid of hell anymore. I serve Christ because I love Him. And I want him to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I want him to be happy with what I do. I want to get up in the morning and put a smile on the face of the one who died for me. And that's what motivates me. And that's what inspires me to be obedient to him as the relationship that I have. Some of you may be saying, well, why would I want to be in this relationship with God in the first place? It's because I know you already know this. If you don't know Him, if you're just out there trying to follow some moral code, if you're just out there trying to, to live through the rules, you know there is a spiritual appetite in you that is looking for something that is not there. And you might label it a lot of other stuff, and you might go to a lot of other substances, and you might go to, to a lot of other habits and hang-ups to try to fill that void. You might go to other relationships to fill that void, but you know that there's something not right in your life, even if you are in the church, and even if you are obeying the rules. There's something missing, and that something missing is that relationship with Jesus Christ. There's an old country song that says, I can't believe it all ends in a slow ride and it hurts. Well, guess what? It doesn't. That's not where it ends. 
We in the church have the answer to that missing void. We're created to live in this relationship with God. In Acts 17, 22 and 23, we have Paul teaching these folks that, that really don't understand God at all, but he says this. It says this, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. In, other way, in every way you're doing good things. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this subscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship has something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. I know who it is that you're looking for. And His name is Jesus Christ. When you discover and live according to the reason you were created, things are just right. Now, now look, if you want to go to lunch someday on you, and you want to talk about some of the TV preachers, you're not going to find anybody that gets more fired up about the nonsense that is out there on the airwaves today, which also has crept into the local church in quite a few ways as well. God does not promise you a nicer car. He does not promise you a bigger house. He does not promise you more money in your bank account. That is not what prosperity in the gospel is about. And to live in right relationship with God to where it's right has nothing to do with that junk. It's got to do with in here. You know the difference. Y'all are old enough to know the difference. You know when you're in a sweet spot of life, don't you? And for some of you, you've never been there your entire life. You've never been there because you've never really surrendered yourself to that relationship with Christ that says none of the other stuff matters. It's not what I'm after anymore, God. What I'm after now is I want to know your heart. <clears throat> I want to be in this love relationship with you. And that's where we can lay it down at night and sleep. And that's where we can get up in the day and know why we live today. That's where we can live in that sweet spot of life. So many of us struggle so much more than we need to. Your circumstances won't change because you come to know Jesus. But how you handle them will. <clears throat> One time I, I brought a couple of folks up in church and I had a board with two screws that were started in it. And I brought someone up that appeared to be kind of weak and someone else up who appeared to be kind of strong. And I said, these screws are started in this board at the same depth and I'm going to give both of you a screwdriver and I want you to screw them all the way into the board and we're going to have a contest and see who wins. And so to the great big old strong guy, I gave a Boy Scout knife with one of those little flip-out Phillips screwdrivers on the end. If you ever tried to do anything with those, you know what a pain that is. And to the other, I pulled out an electric drill with a Phillips head on it. And I said, now go. <clears throat> God has come to every one of us and he's given us a drill. And yet some of us are so incredibly <clears throat> ignorant that we're still using the Boy Scout knife and wondering why we suffer. Wondering why it doesn't feel right. Wonder why everything's a struggle. God says, come unto me. We've been talking about the names of Jesus during this series. <clears throat> We've talked about Jesus as the bread of life who is all that we need, the Son of Man who understands our struggles, the Son of God who has the ability and the, and the will to take away our sins, the King of Kings who is worthy of our obedience. And today, I want to just introduce you to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. John saw him and said that very thing. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Nobody else can do this. Nobody else can make it right. 
Nobody else can move you from A to B to C to D with his arm around you, whispering in your ear and inspiring you why you do what you do every day and moving from one point to another because you're on a journey with the one who loves you <clears throat> from the very foundation of the world. So many of us, it's like we're in a room and there are four doors in that room. We say, which door is the right door? We live in a world today that will tell you they're all right. You know what? It doesn't matter which one you pick because you're a very special individual. And so if you like that door over there, that's the right door. Others will say, well, pick that door because that door's a pretty door. Pick that door because it's a great big masculine door. Pick that door for whatever reason. But let me tell you something. If you're a room and there's four doors and only one of them leads to where you want to go, it does not matter who tells you the other three are right. It does not matter how nice the other three look. There is only one door that will take you where you need to go. And the scripture tells us that one door is the Lamb of God. It's Jesus Christ. It tells us that on that cross, He opened that door. On that cross, that veil was torn in two. On that cross, that security guard was taken away and the gate was torn down and we were invited to come through that door. How do I enter into this relationship with God through Christ? Look at Matthew 27, 50 through 54. <clears throat> when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs. And after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and claimed, surely he was the Son of God. <clears throat> that triumphal entry, which we're going to go back and visit a little bit next week as well, led to this point. And the ones who saw him come in and cried Hosanna and cried hallelujah and had really no idea what he was there to do, had really no idea even why they were crying Hosanna and Hallelujah, did not understand the depths of what was being offered to them in this short period of time. We know that it leads to this. Stop going through the motions. Stop trying so hard to do good things and realize that everything you do good comes out of a relationship with Jesus Christ that changes who you are and invites you on a journey step by step with him am I one of these guys who says well it doesn't matter what you do when you come to Christ no but I am one of these guys who says when you come to Christ it'll become natural what it's right to do as you follow him study his word pray you won't have to struggle about being good. Just be His. And watch what miraculous things happen. Join me in prayer.